From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you bids begin for the Singapore digital banking licenses, UK banks weather New Year's crashes, and RBS turns to influencers to publicize both. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 391 of Fintech Insider. We're really getting close to that 400 mark, aren't we? Producer Laura says we're going to do something. She's not telling us what it is, so we'll see what that is. Uh, I'm David Britt, and today I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going? I'm really enjoying life. Back in the swing of things in the new year. It took me like a couple of days to get out of first gear, but wow, we've got an exciting year in front of us, David. My brain and my mouth are not connected yet, so this uh, yeah. this might be a long show. <laughs> uh, but no, it's been, I mean, it's good to be back, right? It's, it is, and lots of stories to get into. Indeed, and we better get on with it. All right, as always, we are not alone. We're joined by some super-duper awesome guests. Making their Fintech Insider debuts this week, we have Tramang Nguyang. I get, did I get that right? Yes, I'm Trama Nguyen from CFT, co-founder CFT. Very cool. Thank you very much for coming and joining us. Thanks very much uh, for having me. It's a great, great pleasure, and uh, I'm very, I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank very, you. Very cool. And we have uh, Natalie Ustman. Yes. Did I get the surname right? Did. There we go. Uh, COO over at Curve. How's it going? Oh, great. Lots of fun. Lots of excitement. We had. Tons of people starting this year. We're growing very fast, so it's really good. I've been seeing great outbound marketing like everywhere. You guys are good. killing it on the marketing level, good. so uh, well done on that. And uh, returning for another visit, we have Shafali Gupta, VP of Strategy and Ops over at Fluidly. How's it going? Going really well. Thank you very much. How was your break? Um, very short. <laughs> really? Yeah, but uh, back in it, fast start to the year, so all good. Well, thank you very much for coming back again. I mean, we obviously didn't put you off last time, so that's, that's good. <laughs> All right, let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story over on the FT, which is uh, the bids are in for Singapore's digital banking licenses. So the country's monetary authority is set to issue five digital banking licenses this year. It received seven bids for full banking licenses and 14 for wholesale banking licenses. Applications uh, included at Financial, Sa- uh, Southeast Asian ride-hailing company Grab, uh, gaming and internet company Razor, and many, many more. So the winners will be announced in June and are expected to launch in mid-2021. I imagine that will be part of what their application process is, is saying how they're doing it. But, I mean, this is another big step in really regulatory approach defining actually how innovative a market is. What do you guys... I mean, I know, for one, definitely there's a, a Razor fan around the table <laughs> who's getting excited about Razor having a license, but potentially. But um, what do you think, Simon? Yeah, so... Um we saw Hong Kong do this, didn't we, with the virtual banking licenses, and we saw a lot of activity with the likes of Standard Chartered, who we actually helped in their early proposition days in Hong Kong, and WeLab in Hong Kong, who we, we also work with. Uh, and then now you're seeing Singapore do the same, and you always have that traditional competition between Hong Kong mm-hmm. and Singapore. If one does it, the other one needs to. Uh, so it's interesting, the nuances. When we had Tom Blomfeld on uh, towards the end of last year, he sort of mentioned that the capital requirements are actually quite high for some of these banking licenses in Singapore. So it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing massive companies being the ones that are going for this. Um, also interesting that both Grab and Razor are quite you know, homegrown stars for Singapore. Um, you know, Razor being one of those big export companies that has really gone around the world and, and solving different types of problems for users. They have massive user bases and can they make uh, sense of those massive user bases with a banking license in a, in a country the size of Singapore and can they export that regionally or will you see the regionals like Ant Financial and others start to come in and, and make more sense of Southeast Asia. It's, it's 
super interesting time. I don't know if And what do you think, why would Grab, a ride-hailing app, be going after a banking license? What is the reasoning for that, do you think? So, I mean, anybody who has a, at this stage, anybody who has a big enough community to sort of parlay that into financial services, it's it's kind of extension of the benefit of your community, right? I mean, not talking about Grab specifically, but I mean, Uber have been doing that globally, right? Actually, either can you really monetize your employees in a, wait, do you, Uber call them employees now? Your drivers. They do call them employees, don't they? They. I think there was a whole court case, right? Mm. Uh, so they're workers, whatever they want to be called. Um, but actually, uh, whether it's the people who work within your organization or whether it's the community that you've built outside that, it's, I mean, banks did this. They didn't start in just retail banking They and stay there forever. They've moved into other lines. It's just, I think big tech companies are may, uh, maybe just way more aggressive these days of doing it than others. I mean, the razor one seems weird to me. I think there's a massive unmet need for gamers. Uh, if you look at who gamers are, they are typically teenagers and or typically people that are buying things on the internet um, and typically people who t- consume types of content that aren't easily bought via in-country at a physical retail store. Um, and then also that whole gaming community has a whole bunch of problems around esports. Well, I was going to say, is that what you think it is? It's yeah. not like fancy laptops where your keyboard changes color, but it's no. like, uh, you know, esports that was a disc, and but winnings I and genuinely... people that have won $2 million in Fortnite <laughs> yeah. and the teams and how do you de- deal with competition winning. So there's a whole community around that. Mm. Um, so, uh, Shafala, you were about to say something there. I, I was just um, going to comment on the Grab piece. Um, it's essentially for companies like Grab and Uber and these big, uh, I guess, institutions that have a lot of big user base that has uh, a kind of payment system already attached to the app. Um, it always makes sense to go into the financial services bit of it. So for for Grab, for example, it's a, I think it's valued at like fourteen billion, but it's still not profitable. And so their whole thing is getting into the financial services sector to actually. That's I I would guess that's their road to their IPO. Yeah. So that's why they are really invested in this. But also they're partnered with Singtel, which is one of the biggest um, telcos in Singapore. And I think they're applying as a consortium. So that gives them that extra backing to actually try and bid and win this license. If you have 140 million eyeballs, how do you monetize them? And in Facebook, I think it was a case of monetizing them through advertising. Uh, Advertising in Southeast Asia hasn't proven to be as lucrative for the likes of Facebook. So how do you monetize with banking? And I think it's as much outside of Singapore because Singapore is a very developed banking market. Um, But when you you look at Malaysia, Thailand, uh, and a lot of the uh, Indonesia, a lot of those markets with hundreds of millions of uh, consumers who have massive unmet needs, then uh, then things could get really interesting, Trump. Yes, no, Sam, and I totally agree. And I think um, I've, I've, I've seen Singapore growing. Um, four financial centers in Asia, uh, Japan and South Korea, mainly domestic, and Hong Kong and Singapore, real international hubs. Singapore is, for us, the most developed financial center in Southeast Asia with high banking penetration and high company competition on margins. Uh, for fintech and new finance, we love I know both. Uh, Yano's founder Supercharger is part of CFT, uh, head of entrepreneurship, and Hui, who is my also co-founder. Um, and he's been uh, the, the one of the two people judging on the edition of the Singapore FinTech Festival. And uh, for myself in 2016, I attended uh, the, the first Singapore FinTech Festival and I was blown away. 12,000 people attending the yeah, Singapore I FinTech Festival. Last year. Amazing. I, I was there the first yeah. one. I was there last year and I was there this year. And I've seen it growing and growing. And I heard uh, Ravi Minon, 
the, the, uh, from MAS saying, for those who don't equip themselves into digital finance, uh, the world of finance is disrupting. And there's a massive need, an urgent need to get, you know, uh, Singapore, uh, to get into the, the, the speed and training all the people. So I started to think about all my colleagues uh, who were still, you know, in traditional finance, like myself, uh, did they know all about these changes that is that was shaping up, that was taking place? How can they adapt and stay relevant uh, and join this transformation? And this was the turning point for us at CFT. That's why we started CFT, to basically launch uh, and educate professionals in digital finance so that they are not left behind. And that's why we are there. And we've started there, even though we are based in the UK, and we are very happy to be based in the UK. But actually, the need started there in Singapore, and we are actually now one of the largest digital finance university at scale, education at scale, and we started in Singapore. I understand Singapore quite well. We support the country uh, with, uh, with, with this, uh, and pleased to work closely with universities like Nian University uh, to encourage pushing lifelong learning. And so Singapore is a real ambition in digital finance and much more than just a hype. I think they real work on infrastructure, they work on human capital, ecosystem and linking the rest of Asia uh, to, to the rest of the world. It's interesting. We're going to see uh, big techs more and more around the world develop different strategies. And, uh, you know, in the West, we've seen uh, sort of the Apple Pays and now Facebook having different uh, approaches. Google are now in this in 2020, they're going to be partnering with City potentially to do a full uh, retail banking entrance, but with a partner on the back end. You know, what do you think this means for the banks in Singapore? Because uh, it's interesting to me that um, Neil Cross, who was Chief Innovation Officer at DBS, has left DBS and now uh, he's taken a couple of board positions, but one of them is a board position in Razor. So therefore, there's a lot of financial professionals that it can take that knowledge and bring it to big tech, but also big tech it will do things in a way that's potentially competing with the regional banks. I mean, we, we've been saying this for a, a little time, but I mean, while the banks have been terrified of like startups coming and stealing their customers, you get some behemoths sort of rolling into the industry and, and taking them all. So it's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the regulator, both HKMA and MAS, are taking kind of a, a different approach, though, because, mm. I mean, if you look at what the FCA did here, where it was about... Uh, breeding competition through startups coming into the market. So, you know, new challenger banks, new organizations getting full licenses without the same sort of caps that you'd need from a liquidity perspective to sort of get into this space. Um, this is really pitting big organizations versus big organizations just in a different industry, I guess, which, I mean, is 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 fascinating. But it's, I mean, it's, I guess, in all of this, really, what we're probably seeing is the U.S. being left behind. Indeed. And and the U.S. being left behind, but doing, but still having big techs moving, but not being able to move with the regulatory speed. So mm. they're almost forced to partner, as, as you say. Well, it's maintaining the relevance of very large banks in America, isn't it? Um, so to comment actually on the regulatory uh, environment in Singapore, I think that's fascinating, as you just mentioned, because there's a, uh, a nice balance between having quite firm regulatory requirements, but also keeping the spirit of innovation live. But I think the key question now for these incumbents is probably around um, whether they can use their strengths, which is mostly brand and um, lower operational costs, and whether they can really drive into that one um, uh, proposition that will actually sell and be profitable in the uh, mid to long term, because that's actually one of the requirements for the MAS, um, apart from just like large caps, but also, you know, they asked for like three to five year uh, profitability, prof 
profitability and growth plans. Ooh, that's interesting. And so that's kind of like kind of stifling competition a little bit because that will scare people away. But also I think it's interesting because you're actually trying to get to the root of the neobank's problem that's quite global. Which, you know, as you look across the cycle, um, then profitability is one of the big questions aimed at challenger banks and aimed at a lot of uh, alternative lenders. So actually baking that in at the start is almost forcing people to think through the, exactly. the credit cycle. Um, and when your DNA isn't thinking in credit cycles, your DNA is monthly active user growth, then do you have the expertise and how do you quickly build that DNA? How can you absorb it? And can the incumbent get uh, kind of uh, distribution and scale? Uh, sorry, can the incumbent get innovation before the innovator gets scale? Well, these innovators have already got scale. So can they get this type of... It's, it's a slightly different story, but it, the macro trend is like everything is fintech. It, whatever business line you're in, everything is starting to become fintech. It's almost like 10 years ago, it was uh, everything's a mobile company. 20 years ago, everything's an internet company. And almost saying you do mobile is kind of pointless because, of course, you have to do mobile. Saying you do fintech is starting to go that way. I think we just got a name for the episode right there. <laughs> go on, sorry. No, I, I really like your, your idea with DBS. I mean, with Neil Cross, you know. I think when, because I, I, I understand Singapore and what they're trying to do compared to the, the new uh, the incumbent versus, you know, the, 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 the new the, the, the fintech coming or the challenger bank that will be coming. It's about, they're putting a lot of effort about transforming the people. I mean, you, if you look at the, the case of, D, the, of DBS, it's for me the, the, the most successful mm. example of having transformed being a traditional bank to being a very digital bank. They mm. call themselves a one seventeen thousand one person you know company, all thinking the the same way. It's incredible, and this is incredible. And uh, we've seen also with OCBC and UOB working hand in hands to transform themselves so that they can actually keep the employee very alert about digital, so that they can innovate and they take. Uh, a big focus on training the, the, the people. But to, to come back to your question, I think um, it's a wake-up call. Mm. It's a wake-up call. And let's see if, you know, the impact on the margins. DBS has one of the highest return on ROE uh, for their assets. And I think making even some VC funds very jealous. So we'll, we'll see. We'll mm. see wow, how, how yeah. it is. I think it's going to be really interesting because, I mean, the, the, the wave from a fintech perspective was like slow here. Uh, I mean, you know, small user bases, people doing, um, you know, minimum lovable products, small to market. Uh, these players going into Singapore with committed profitability and, you know, you can, in three years, that market should have transformed dramatically. They almost can't do small because of because of precisely that regulatory yeah. point. But then you think about somebody like a Neil Cross who's got experience doing digital in the regulated industry before. How much more of that talent is, is really out there? And, and who do you call when you need that mix of, I get and I understand big tech, but I also get and I understand finance. Like the people that can walk in both worlds are, are really, really rare. And actually that's you know that was one of the big things that Grab said when we worked with them is like they were struggling to find that in the market. And actually you know, kind of partnering with us, they got some of that. But how do you build that sustainably? I think it's an interesting question. Well, I think Neil's been hanging out in his orangutan sanctuary for too long, hasn't he? So we'll uh, listeners, we'll, if you don't know Neil Cross, by the way, you should Google him. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, 
get him on the show in a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. All right, let's move on because we could probably talk about Singapore for the next uh, next 45 minutes. But uh, moving on. So over on The Guardian was the next story. So this is banking errors open the new year. So Lloyd's, Halifax and Bank of Scotland customers were unable to access mobile and online banking on New Year's Day. Uh, the issue began around 4 a.m. and was resolved by midday. Nine million mobile users were potentially affected by this. Lloyd's Banking Group, who owns all three of those banks, later said that the crash was due to internal issues and not a cybersecurity concerns. I think, if I remember rightly, previously there was some uh, cybersecurity. There was they were being held sort of ransom, weren't they, at one point for for something? So uh, you could see why their their users would sort of think that. Two days later, customers of Clydesdale Yorkshire Banks complained that their accounts were being uh, not yet being updated to reflect their wages. Uh, the bank claimed that the error was due to a date problem, which uh, and promised to refund any changes by stemming that uh, and that issue. I mean, this is a ongoing problem, I guess, to a certain degree. This is sort of big bank technology maybe sort of letting them down a little bit in terms of um, providing this sort of 24-7 support that consumers really need. I mean, this is probably, I've seen a lot of 2020 prediction plans, but this is a trend that was going to continue, right? <laughs> yeah. Outages. This is, of course, after the FCA, more than a year since the FCA required banks to publish data about their operational and security incidents. So there is, the, you, you remember you used to get the press releases, like nothing to see here, everything's fine, we're working to resolve service as normal. You're getting a bit more information coming out of the big banks, but this feels very different to what you would get out of one of the challenger banks that says this widget broke, here's how we're trying to fix it, these bits still work, and, and a more human tone to communication. I mean, as I, say, I don't know if you have views on how this has been communicating and how this impacts consumers' sentiment um, in this space. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I was thinking back when I read about this going, well, isn't it about every month that we're seeing an outage, whether it's from a large institutional bank or a smaller fintech, we do hear this coming out regularly. I might be a bit biased, but I feel that a fintech might get more of a backlash than a traditional bank when this happens, which is, I think, mis misplaced. So then people start, you know, you get these news stories about it. That could just be a feeling. I don't have any facts behind that. However, I do agree with you. There's a human field to the way fintechs want to communicate. And I think that has to do with the base that we're communicating to. The base that we're communicating to uh, wants to know what's happening, questions it on social media. So you have to be very forthright with your answers. Otherwise, you're going to get slammed on Twitter. You're going to get slammed on Instagram. And that's not, and that's where our user base is, for example, right? So um, probably the larger institutions don't worry about that so much. Can I ask a follow-up? How do you think about um, brand permission to be authentic? Because authenticity with a user base is absolutely crucial. Um, and increasingly, it looks like it will be more so in the future, not less so. Um, but as an older brand with different customer segments who might not necessarily feel like that level of transparency is helpful or maybe even scary. Or maybe there's regulatory concerns and a very large regulatory department that's probably got a lot of strength to mm. say, mm. you need to be as opaque as possible when we're fixing it and <laughs> yeah. give a time frame. Maybe. I, I can't speak because I'm, mm. I'm not there. I don't know. Mm, interesting. But, but, you know, in my previous experience in larger institutions, that's sometimes what happens. So, so. do you think then that there is a balance between um, protecting the organization but also damaging the organization at the same time? So by being too opaque, you're actually damaging the marketing and the brand long term, even though in the short term you might be keeping the the negative press sort of contained. Is uh, There's an interesting trade-off there that I don't think 
people in big institutions talk about. Well, that's, that, again, it's segment-oriented, right? So what customer segment are you talking to? Some expect, some are used to it that way and some are not, right? Mm-hmm. So. I, mean, I mean, it's difficult because in a big organization, if there's a problem and you're then the spokesperson and make it even remotely worse, you will be hung, drawn, and quartered. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, media training does not serve that quite that purpose, does that's it? Right. But uh, So, I mean, I completely agree with you. It's the idea of just sort of trying to remain perfectly still and hoping their vision is based on movement is not uh, is not really sort of the the go yeah. for this one but and I, and I think it's interesting though because I mean a digital organization who fundamentally deals with people digitally if your digital banking goes down or your service goes Which it down hasn't uh, no, sure <laughs> but I mean I mean anybody's I mean you know Monzo's had outages sure. and Starlink's yeah. had outages and I mean we should say you know fintech does have this but yeah. it's the way in which people deal with it to your point that is a fundamentally different approach it's yeah. it's radical transparency in its real sense you know yeah I was just going to say, it's also a lot about, as you mentioned, the expectation of the, the demographic. So as a, as a banker of a, a more incumbent bank, I wouldn't really expect them to be transparent. Um, but also they know that the younger and the millennial generation will actually go to Twitter and social media. And, you know, for them, it's all about in, instant gratification. And I'm part of that as well. And I would want to air my woes. And, you know, because I know someone will take look at it and they will get back to me because these things go viral really quickly Mm. and so it's just that expectation of oh shit we have to like actually respond to them and be super clear if not they're going to keep questioning me and 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 i think that's the thing i don't know if you saw um sharon odea had a problem with ba this week i don't know if you saw that on twitter hilarious sharon if you're listening it was like one of the funniest things but the ba just made it like a billion times worse by like a Dear Sharon, here is like, if no. you'd have done this, then it wouldn't have been. And it's like, wow. <laughs> like in, in many instances, like saying sorry is not like accepting liability. Like this is a different thing. And actually, I think in many organizations, the a big digital transformation has removed like how to talk to humans from this whole process. Uh, and that's all that's required. Like you go to Twitter, it's like, this sucks, this happened. Somebody gets back in touch and goes, that sucks, we're sorry, we're yeah. trying to fix it, we'll be with you shortly. Like how Problem hard Problem resolved, you yeah. know. It's, it's that ownership thing of the problem. There's a really interesting story that a, a, a CIO who shall remain nameless that works at a big bank told me um, about uh, one of their staff went up to an event and put up, a, like, this is our current internal infrastructure at, like, a development DevOps type of, of event. And, you know, it's quite old was something that they said and got quoted in the press. And, of course, immediately the CIO has a call from their PR team person saying, oh, well, th- yeah. that's not acceptable. They said our tech's old. And the CIO said, yes, it is. We're we're working to fix it. He also said that, and that also got quoted. And the things we're doing were rated as being the right thing to do. Um, well, are you going to take the PR guy? Goes, are you going to take ownership for that? And the CIO goes, yes, because it's my job to make the tech better. Like I'm, I'm fine with this. Okay, so you own it then. <laughs> so there was like, and it's this really interesting like blame culture thing of like, well, it's not my problem, but even though I'm in the PR team, you've taken ownership of it. But actually, where's the customer in that? Where's the where's the brand protection in that? It's like protecting myself versus protecting the organization. There's an interesting and anecdote. oh by the way, probably everybody already knows the tech is old. It's well, not really well, I mean, a secret. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so based on the story back in August from the BBC was that each UK bank suffers on average ten shutdowns a month. So the idea that nobody's noticing is mm-hmm. reasonably unlike. 
you're going to have to be pretty lucky just to sort of dodge all those bullets, aren't you? There's an interesting thing um, Superhuman have. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the email app Superhuman. They talk about high expectation customers. So they're replacing, they're really competing with Gmail and Superhuman's big thing is we'll make email twice as fast for you. But they don't bother trying to go to everyone. They're just going after the high expectation customers who really care about uh, that particular thing. Mm. And winning those is the customer of tomorrow because they're the ones that are going to be your growth customer. They really want something more from email. And and a challenger in any market is the one that wants something more from their bank, something more from their insurer. So the fintechs are the ones that get those customers, but they're the ones that allow you to drive your product because they're the high expectation customers. And so they, they've they optimized their product development cycle around finding those high expectation customers and then driving into the, driving their product roadmap off the back of them. If you're not communicating to those high expectation customers, even if they're, you know, even if you're a big bank, like you're potentially losing those high expectation customers to the challenges or at least their brand affinity. Mm. So there's a there's a trade-off there that I think is important. Tram, sorry, did you? No, I think it has, for me, the, the Lloyd's uh, outage, I think, profoundly, what is the impact? What does it really mean? Um, and I think, what does it show? I think finance today, it's all about technology, and uh, and if anyone still doubts it, it's all about technology. And why do these banks seem so clueless uh, uh, when these issues arise? And so because they don't understand technology, and that's 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 a real problem. That you know that was not a problem ten years ago. But for example, in board of banks, and I'm just saying it because I think it, it has its own impact, almost no one has any tech background. And, if, and you keep hearing, you know, all this uh, problem with banks having this. And I, I feel for me, it's, it's not normal that people don't know. I mean, even employees in the bank, they don't realize the importance of them understanding what's happening uh, because they don't understand technology. And that's why the mission of CST is, is very much, as you said, Simon, making sure that people understand finance, but also the technology and the risk involved. Mm. And that is super important. I mean, you know, Lloyd's have done, I mean, they've done the right things. I mean, not in this instance, but they've done the right things. I mean, these they've invested in Thought Machine, you know, they're kind of changing, trying to change their core, they're trying to put things in place. I honestly think this is a, this is a um, blame culture, fear of speaking up thing. And actually, I think it, it, what it does highlight is the inability for them to do something quickly about a problem. Because inevitably, if, if every bank is having 10 outages a month, that's like, insane amount of outages, isn't it? Um, so actually, the, they're, all they're doing is pushing people to other providers who can provide a better level of service or just talk to them like human beings. But I mean, given that there's 10 of these a month, I reckon this is going to be coming mm. up in a few we'll months. We'll come back so. to this one, I'm sure. All right, let's move on. All right. Next up, we have a story over on the BBC, which is hackers hold TravelX to ransom. So the foreign exchange company took down its website in 30 countries after discovering a software virus on New Year's Eve. Since then, the situation has escalated. I mean... Can you escalate from taking down your entirety of your website from that bit? So hackers are threatening both IT systems and customer data if TravelX doesn't hand over £4.6 million. Uh, travel money services from partners such as uh, Virgin Money, Sainsbury's Bank, First Direct are also currently down. The BBC later reported that some TravelX orders have been left in limbo due to the outage. This is... Um, 
A pretty scary one, isn't it, really? I mean, given the the timing of this as well in terms of doing it when, um, you know, people are probably least likely to have any ability to really deal with it, given everybody's going to be on holiday. But, I mean, what do you guys think on this one? I want to know how they're going to pay the $4.6 million if they do. <laughs> in, what, in which currency? Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't the founder a billionaire? So you could probably just yeah, pay no, it off. But I mean, so, uh, what I mean is there are hackers here. That's illegal. So if you're putting it into an account, you know, I'm just wondering, is it cash and bundles? Five, <laughs> five, fives and tens, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's a very interesting one, right? I don't, I'm, I'm wondering how they're being held to ransom. Mm. And also, would you ever give – you can't give in to that, right? Because once you start giving in to that, you are the one who will keep giving in to that. Mm. I would think, I mean – Funny we'll never that. know, right? So I was in an event in 2018, um, the European Central Bank's um, Into the Future conference, and they had um, one of their chief uh, researchers for cybersecurity that was giving advice to that room full of people for the European Central Bank. And he said, the, the probably the scariest thing I'm going to say to you today is make sure you've got some Bitcoin so that you can pay for ransom. No. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Scary. So this so is the, this is this is a reality. You <laughs> yeah. know, sometimes if you just can't undo the software, you might have to pay the ransom, and you at least need that option if if it's business critical and it's going to put you out of business. But I mean, I mean, Tesco got themselves into this problem, didn't they? With a, there was a system hack, and uh, I'm not sure they necessarily paid a paid a ransom, but they found out that there was malicious code essentially within their environment. It's really hard from a systems perspective to know. Uh, you know, when you've cut away the the bad wood from the good, as it were, you know. So, uh, like, actually, even if you paid the ransom, there's no, there's no, nothing to say that they wouldn't, Do you know, again. kill the hostages anyway. In terms <laughs> of like the the data and everything that actually would be there. So, I mean, they're in a, they're sort of in an impossible situation. But I mean, four point six million. I wonder how much they've lost by having the website yeah, down yeah, for in yeah. thirty countries by that amount of time. So, and that was kind of the and, point, and right? Wasn't just it? coming from a technology company, right? One of the things is there's a lot of code. <laughs> right? So you never know. Uh, it could come from within. And yeah. that's all obviously something that uh, infosecurity teams are always looking at, right? So how do you catch if something's been placed? I think the infosecurity advice as well has moved from being trying to prevent to accepting that, yes, you should continue to try and prevent, but you're not going to prevent everything. No. So get much better at reacting. And there's a psychology of almost not wanting to accept that you will get hacked. But a lot of infosecurity professionals I talk to say, yes, you will. Your ability to react is your differentiator here and your ability to keep the lights on. Interesting. I found that the TravelX response was um, slightly... Uh, well, left a bit to be desired because they basically came out and said, um, their, I think their website said it was under planned maintenance, but actually that wasn't really the case, right? Because like everyone knows what happened. I think the, the BBC referred to it as shockingly bad, which for the, for the like in British, that's like, you know, <laughs> fucking appalling, isn't it? You know, like it's, we're being very understated by it, aren't we? But it's, um, it is, it is interesting, you know, planned maintenance. But um, yeah, I mean, we're going to find out, I guess, in a couple of weeks what happens with this one. But um, I can see them paying the ransom and then paying more money as time goes on, on this, for this one. And definitely, I think from a brand reputation perspective, they're going to be paying for it for a while. All right. Next up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is oddly connected to this one. Laura, you just keep linking the shows. It's good. All right. UK regulators at work on digital data strategies. If only Travelax had one of those, eh? Uh, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England are enhancing the role of analytics and automation in their data strategies. The FCA will establish data science units and explore it its recent move to cloud-based IT infrastructure to become a data-driven regulator. I'm not sure what that means, but 
Cool. Uh, meanwhile, the Bank of England will attempt to enhance data collection. Firms would be required to submit data automatically. This is a massive step forward. I mean, this is something that I know we've talked about a lot, but it's like in a, in a world where you know batch systems were fine and everything was wonderful and you could fiddle around with all the numbers behind the scenes and then submit them to the regulator, did we really get a view of what was up and what was going on? Actually, in really true online, you know, web scale, very, very advanced technology backend systems, whether it's core banking systems or the, their architecture, why is regulation not something that's fully automated? Uh, and if they're taking proper steps in this direction, then this is fantastic. And by the way, I think a lot of this is also um, talking about the big tech that's coming into banking. So it brings mm. it back to the beginning of the discussion. These, this thought process is going through for exactly that reason, because there's a lot of data that's going around, and these big data technology companies are now coming into the banking space. So I, I actually, you know, hats off to the FCA for starting to think ahead of this, because by being, by at least having a strategy, they're at least thinking about what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, and, and as you as you say, it's. I mean, it moves from a proactive. Uh, it's like the the. The old adage of like the best way to resolve something is to avoid it, right? Yeah. So actually being in a situation where actually regulation is real time, then actually they can step in rather than sifting through the wreckage looking for the black box and then finding somebody a billion pounds, you know? Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I think you're totally right. I think um, fintech uh, needs regtech. I think you know that yeah, RegTech is huge. It's coming into the place. You know, I think RegTech today is where fintech was five years ago. If you look at the numbers only, I think RegTech spending is to reach 20 uh, billion in 2022, wow. which is uh, phenomenal. Uh, I, I, I have to, to say, I love the RegTech book. I don't know if you, you guys uh, heard about the RegTech book launched by Janos Barbaris, uh, head of uh, entrepreneurship and academic board of CFT uh, with Douglas Honor. It's a very, very good book. It gives you a, a huge framework about how to analyze RegTech into the fintech space. Uh, I have to say, uh, FCA definitely has been, uh, you know, at the forefront uh, of helping innovation, uh, and also they're applying it uh, to to itself. And as you see, you, know, you like uh, a lot of organization uh, data strategy uh, should be the foundation um, of the rest, uh, but also the way of thinking how they use data. There's a huge amount of data out there. Most of the organization don't have a strategy to use the data. Um, and um, I think um, I will just mention one um, that I really um, uh, enjoyed is um, looking at the work that's been done with uh, David Ardun. He's uh, the AI specialist at MAS in Singapore, uh, and they launch um, the FIT principle. I don't know if you guys have heard about the FIT, uh, the FIT principle. It's um, a work and a report uh, that's been done and document provided the guidance uh, as to how firms offering financial products uh, and services on the responsible of the use of AI and data analytics uh, with uh, um, internal um, governance around management and the use. So they use a principle so that people can use it in an ethical way uh, with respecting certain principle. And I think this is the something that uh, 
we at CFT, we've, we've seen because we launched the AI in finance program. Um, and it was uh, something very valuable that we see that, yes, I think there's a more and more synergies. And I think it's coming from everywhere around the world. And the UK regulators uh, is starting to work on that. I like that principles-based approach that fits with, like the, with, the, um, with the FCA a lot. Exactly. It. But this about reg reporting specifically, mm. if you work in a bank or you've worked anywhere near a bank and you've heard reg reporting, I bet you just shut it a little mm. bit. Like it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just it's just kind of gross. And reg reporting has always been that thing that got spat out of the core banking system that nobody really wanted to mess with. And it was sort of a dark art. And actually, it sort of created vendor lock-in and it created a lot of thing problems for banks that they've been trying to deal with and unlock for quite some time. It also created a, oh, you can't do that because the regulator said type of um, thing that you could always say. And this is pulling that away. Um, so the FCA and the Bank of England have done what they always do, which is, you know, competitive advantage of the UK is, I think, policy. This is really, really interesting. Um, the one thing that I saw in this that scared me was both regulators will also explore the creation of common data standards in the wake of these changes. Feels like data standards are very 90s. Um, like creating a data standard in the uh, in the way, in the day of restful APIs is, is a bit outdated. What I need to do is create a modern API in which you can submit all of the relevant data that I can then view and see if you've given me what I've asked for, how you send it to me and in what format. Like that's that's 90s and early 2000s type of stuff. Can't, you can't help but feel it's like somebody means an Excel template. Yeah, <laughs> and you, but once you get into templates, you get into ISO 20022, and my system doesn't do that, so now I need an extra field in the data, and then the whole thing takes 10 years longer than you want. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, though, if they're, they're talking about real time, though, in this sense, that most organizations just can't provide that data in real time. So this is, this is uh, forcing, back to what we were saying about Lloyd's, it's like forcing massive back-end infrastructure changes to start meeting different types of regulation. You know, banks, just when you thought exposing APIs was difficult, like, go do real-time regulatory reporting. You know? can, can your core system do this? Mm. Can, on, the, on the plus side, though, is this the FCA and the Bank of England disintermediating KPMG? <laughs> <laughs> Reg reporting. Yeah, spreadsheet. It, it definitely disintermediates spreadsheets and I think look reg reporting done right has so many benefits to the economy and so many benefits to the bank themselves because if they can see we saw this after MIFID 2 banks were asked to do reporting in a different way and then they suddenly started looking at the MIFID 2 data and go oh wait I I can use that too. So there are lots of benefits here to banks that, that could, could be really helpful. I mean, Shvali, I don't know if you have views on this. this. Um, so I was going to say about the common data standards uh, piece, which is, you know, have, creating the right balance between getting this real-time reporting through APIs, which is actually a mammoth task for a lot of financial services companies. Um, but I think one of the issues that the FCA uh, faces is that the data that it receives, it's so heterogeneous. So it's not in the same um, format. And, and I know format sounds very 90s, but it leaves... It's uh, all over the place. It, it's all open to misinterpretation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the issue that they probably want to go after, where mm. can you send me data in a specific way that I can read um, in a standard format across all the financial mm. services companies? I mean, we, we have seen the regulator make a few missteps lately with trying to standardize too many of these things. And, you know, Tom said this when he was on from, from mm. Monzo about the um, the, the different the ways APR in which... stuff and the overdraft yeah, stuff. Exactly. And, and actually even, you know, talks of um, changing how... 
um, faster payments are done to you know put a mis- uh, stutter step in it. So I mean, it's it is it is an interesting thing. It, it makes you wonder whether they're slowly standardizing and moving away from the opportunities of organizations that just do it in this way anyway. Yeah, um, you're baking in yesterday's tech assumptions into tomorrow's regulation, exactly. and that's concerning. Yeah. All right. Before we get back on with the show, we wanted to let you know that Finnovate Europe is happening next month in Berlin. It's on the 11th to the 13th of February. Finnovate Europe is the continent's premier fintech event focused around live seven-minute demos and the latest in fintech innovations. You can network with over 1,200 senior attendees and gain insights from 150 speakers who will be sharing their insights and the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovateeurope.com and quote VIP code 11FS for a 20% discount for your organization. Okay, that, so that's 11FS. I mean, if you need 11FS spelling out at this stage, guys, what is really wrong with mm-hmm. you? <laughs> All right, let's get on with the show. So, I mean, a bunch of stuff happened while I was eating cheese and crackers over the Christmas break. So maybe if we just cover a few of the bits that. So, that's right. All right, so Monzo is allegedly meeting with large investors. Ooh, all dark and mysterious. So uh, they're looking to raise apparently between 50 and 100 million in 2020. Uh, last year, Monzu was valued at 2 billion after raising 113 million. So we'll have to get Tom back on to find out if he's uh, looking down the back of the couch for some more money. But we'll, we'll find out very soon. Mm. Uh, next up, there was a an, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is way harder to say after two cans of beer than you would think it would be, has begun a full investigation into Westpac over earlier child exploitation allegations. So this obviously was a story that came out that was stemming around money laundering scandals. So not being very good at really understanding where the transactions were taking place within their systems. The big four banks have been ordered to set aside one billion in penalties in the wake of these allegations, which is pretty damn terrifying. So I imagine it won't be the last time we'll hear some news from this one. So uh, look out for this one in episodes to come. Next time we had that City has started a recruitment drive to hire 2,500 coders from around the world. So City's Institute Clients Group, ICG, will hire in cities such as London, New York, Shanghai, Toronto, and Dublin, amongst many others. The recruitment drive comes after Goldman starts automating its trading business and JP Morgan seeks trading licenses. So, I mean... Big organizations, big banks start looking for dev. This is going to be super yeah, they're interesting. In, they're insourcing dev talent, which comes to a point that was made earlier. Interesting. Well, I mean, in, in many places, this is going to be a really interesting battle. I mean, fintech struggling with talent, so big banks are going to start talent sort of bumping up against it. Tech. And, and also, will culturally, will uh, you can hire the coders, but can you get the most out of them? Is your org design and are your incentives built the right way? And where does that leave banking in a box? Yeah, it is. <laughs> can you keep them? Uh, next up, we had PayPal will acquire shopping rewards company Honey for four billion. Bloody hell. PayPal acquires Honey in a bid to boost shopper engagement and e-commerce sales. So Honey is known for its browser extension, which finds online coupons and saving opportunities for users. It operates in both the affiliate and the loyalty spaces. Has you ever used Honey? I have. Is it good? Um, I actually used it about five years ago, um, and it didn't. I don't, I don't think it was as um, advanced as it is now. Yeah, I guess now, it's valued at four billion. That's shocking. I love the thing. So it's just a little browser extension, and when you get to checkout, it just automatically goes, "Hey, we found some discount codes for you." Automatically enters the discount codes for you that you know were available based off all of the other users that have input them, and so you'll just start saving money just by having this browser extension. Wow, it's amazing. 
And so you think about what that means for conversion or bring, or data. There's like a whole bunch of stuff that could be in there. How is that worth four billion pounds? I don't know how many users they've got and how much data they've got. I mean, they must have all the users. Well, like and also how how will PayPal use it, right? Because mm. they can definitely use that to their advantage, right? Yeah, if you're I mean, a PayPal customer, you're in the PayPal ecosystem. Maybe I don't know. There's or even actually using the browser. I mean, you're promoted a code, but then pay with PayPal, right? So mm-hmm. that's probably where they're going with this one. Yeah, I don't know. Makes we'll a see. lot of sense, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. All right. Well, I mean, it's good to know somebody was working while I was eating cheese anyway, so that's that's nice. Let's get back to the regular stories. So uh, next up over on Finextra, we had Australia pauses open banking over security concerns. So the country's consumer data right was expected to take effect in February, but the policies account data provisions drew security concerns from Australia's competition watchdog, which delayed the rollout until July 1st. So under the new rules, banks must share financial financial data with approved service providers and consumers' request. Uh, this is covering mortgage and personal loan sharing. Apparently, that's going to come back in November this year. Um, but it's re- it's interesting. I mean, the fact that open banking has kind of happened and API security should be pretty much standardized across these things. We, it's interesting to understand, what, like, is this a, I wonder if this is a liability thing rather than a, the API is exposing data in an unsecure way? We saw a similar thing in the UK when open banking came along that a lot of the big banks immediately said, oh, well, it won't be secure. Um, and then we saw the CMA9 turn into the open banking group and uh, the open banking implementation entity, and they worked on security standards. It's interesting that also privacy was a part of that conversation. And now we're seeing a similar thing, potentially looking, maybe playing out in Australia. Um, but what's in the timing of this is quite different. In the UK, that conversation happened three years before the go live. Here it's happening, sort of, it's about to go live, oh, wait, the competition watchdogs, like, actually, no, delay it because we've got a concern about privacy. Uh, and then maybe it's because it was broader. In the UK, open banking was open current accounts and savings accounts. It wasn't open mortgages and loans information, which is what Australia is potentially doing, which is a lot more ambitious. So there's a lot of information about your house and your mortgage and your credit status that you wouldn't want certain companies to be able to get access to. So these these are hard issues. Mm. Yeah, I have to say something. Um, totally agree with you. There's a there's a delay. Mm. Uh, at CFT, we actually did a program uh, on open banking in Canada, and we're launching the the first uh, online course about open banking in a few months. But the delay is not surprising at all. A very complex uh, issue. Uh, many people uh, didn't realize that it wasn't just about doing APIs and and and, compl- and complying with regulations, uh, but fundamentally it was changes into the strategy, the governance, the process, the liability. So not a tech, but much more a management issue. Uh, I feel, uh, and at the same time, the the idea and concept of open banking, uh, open bank banking, are not clear to everyone, and that changes the way we think of finance with mm. platforms, with ecosystem, open APIs. Uh, that's that's uh, that's uh, what I think. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, if it does feel like Groundhog Day to a certain degree, we, you know, having had these conversations a lot with from a UK perspective, you know, we talked about it before. It's like. Uh, open banking was all stick and no carrot. You know, there's sort of no up, real upside for the banks. There's lots of like potential you could do a thing, but mostly it's like doing something that they would never have done unless they were forced to do. Um, so it's interesting that in Australia they've used so many different reasons, so many different excuses to sort of uh, slow these things down. But again, I'm like, maybe this is where, like, from a global regulatory perspective, I know, uh, you know, the FCA here do a lot of work with uh, HKMA and MAS, and I'm sure within the Australian regulators. 
it kind of feels like more global standards on these types of things makes a huge amount of sense, especially for organizations that work globally. Uh, you know, a lot of the organizations, uh, you know, that do that now, adhering to the same intent of regulation, but in fundamentally different ways, just seems was you know farcical really you wouldn't imagine a stripe or an agent or somebody struggling with this in quite the same way as the banking industry and so that's an interesting but then they you know there are very different business with very different regulatory requirements um the security concerns apparently have been raised for nearly a year at this point so that what's interesting about the timing as, as tram says is that it got so far before there was a delay and that this um this probably you know if you're close to it has been an ongoing debate but um you know you would expect people to kick this out by a year not a few months and it's it's very interesting, Trump. Well, I mean, back in October, it was revealed that four of the major banks over in Australia and other financial institutions had already missed pretty much every milestone that they had for open banking. So, I mean, this is sort of the naughty children leaving their homework until last minute, potentially. Yeah. And milestones are there to make you disappointed if you're in open banking. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll see what comes with this one next. Okay, next up we have a story over on The Telegraph, which is Tandem Causes Tandemonium with £6 monthly fee. So the Challenger Bank stopped offering its free credit card to new consumers at the end of 2019. Uh, now it has announced an involuntary membership. Involuntary membership is definitely a weird <laughs> term, isn't it? For its cashback card. Uh, users must now pay £5.99 uh, a month. Those who don't pay will be unable to use their cards after March 9th. Doesn't feel very voluntary. Here's a voluntary membership, at, at, and you can't use your card in three months if you don't volunteer. No, it's an involuntary membership. Oh, okay. they've done. So which, which is just... It's just a fee. Like just yeah, pay the fee. Just call it so a fee. So the move has drawn social media criticism from tandem users. Uh, the bank currently has about 500,000 customers. I mean, it's been an interesting road for tandem, hasn't it, with various different things. I mean, they were one of the first, I think, to apply for a banking application and then okay. actually let go of the banking application, didn't they? Just because okay. they didn't have the capital requirements, wasn't it? Uh, and then various different things that have happened. And then obviously buying... Ha uh, Harrods Bank or being given Harrods Bank well, I couldn't yeah. really ever work out there was some, some Asian um, conglomerate I think it was a Chinese investor um, mm. that, that invested a little bit in them and then they were looking at potentially uh, sort of opening up in Hong Kong mm. maybe I seem to recall I mean look there's been a lot of talk about is 2020 the year that FinTech actually starts being you know sort of revenue positive, whichever, you know, making money. Is, is FinTech actually going to start making money in 2020? But maybe the way to do that is not necessarily by just having such a hard and fast kind of, you know, if you like this drug, you can pay for it now. Uh, if you mm -hmm. don't, then we will stop, you know, delivery. Um, then probably, I mean, even back in the Fedor days, actually, those guys did a really, really good job of engaging with community and getting them to really understand that it isn't a charity; it's a, mm. it's a business, and that actually, if you if you find value in the service that they provide, then actually, there's going to start being a fee to it. It just seems maybe everything that we were saying earlier on around the the communication hiccups that big organisations have with uh, outages, we're maybe seeing a little bit of that with fintech not handling like we're a business and we need to start making money particularly effectively. What do you guys think? Hasn't Tandem been around probably the longest out of all, so probably there's some pressures there, right? Maybe. Investors have got to start putting some pressure on them for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty well-funded, aren't they? Um, I think it's like upwards of $70 million. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think nobody really wants to start uh, charging for a service that's been free. So there has to be some pressure um, because, I guess, the unit – if. Particularly when you have other choices, exactly. Right? <laughs> it's like it's it's a very it, you can switch over so easily, and 
I think it's very interesting that they're trying to prove out their unit economics now versus actually getting to scale and then trying to get there because the unit economics will obviously be very different now at half a million versus at a 10 million customer base, where, which is where like Revolut and Monzo are headed. Mm. I guess, but they're a credit card, aren't they? So a credit card at half a million's a pretty decent book to a certain degree, isn't it? Mm. But actually, I completely agree with you. It's like almost halfway through that journey. It does feel, to your point, actually, it feels like maybe halfway through the journey, one of their investors has gone, come on, guys, like, you know. I've been in this we, for a while. Yeah, here. you know, show, show, me some, show me some love here, you know. The credit card market historically had two sides to it. You had the uh, revolvers and transactors, revolvers being uh, people who didn't pay off the entire balance every month. So you made money from those customers on the interests. And um, then, you know, sort of uh, the subprime markets, and there was always a question of, is that predatory and, and, and all these sorts of things. But you'd see like a Capital One in the UK and, and in the US has done really well in subprime because they've been able to uh, really get clever at identifying uh, people who you know, they can take on some risk, but actually this pe- this is good credit for these people. It helps them fix a leaky roof. It helps them deal with the leaking bathroom. It helps them get somewhere in their lives. And you know they've actually done something useful and uh, they made money and they made a profitable business out of it. But you don't see a fee associated with that. Then you see the transactors, people who pay off the, the whole balance every month. And typically from them, you're not making the income in interest. So you're trying to find another way. So you'll see things like fees, but in return for those fees, well, you get you're still making of, a transaction, a fee. You're, you're making still getting money every transaction, yeah. But the interchange in Europe now is caps on Visa and MasterCard brand, and even on Amex, it's not what it used to yeah. be. So that revenue line's a lot lower. You're not getting the, the kind of the... Um, uh, APR uh, and and that sort of fee line. So now you need to charge a fee. What's interesting about this five ninety nine fee is it's sort of somewhere between those two. So who's in the book and and who's the segment mm. and who am I charging a fee to and and would they would they be able to carry a fee? Because to the point you made, David, which I think was a really interesting one, that sort of. Uh, some customers, if you communicate with them the right way, would probably buy this, Natalie. But who do you think their, their customer base is? Who, who, on what do you think this signal this sense? I mean, I think their customer base is more north, yeah. right, of the country, I believe. Uh, but I can't be assured of that. I do think there is a bit of a trend. There have been some other companies that have started to place fees on the cards. Um, the, the, I think it's Osper has put a fee on the card, which has caused some question marks from families who are using it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, that's a very specific product for a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not a lot of options. But in mm-hmm. tandem case, I, I, I'm worried for them, right? It's. I mean, looking at this from a slightly different angle, right? So part of the product that they get, so they, there's a 1.5 savings rate that will be opened up if you've got one of these cards. You get 0.5% cash back on this. I mean, But you I, don't have an option to have a free card. Sure, but for five ninety nine, I mean, American Express a gold card costs you what, like three hundred pounds a year. Mm-hmm. So actually, sorry, I think it's one fifty. One fifty, man, you get a better deal than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like uh, sexism. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, hell it, no. This is like Apple Card, just the other way. <laughs> it's um, but do you know what I mean? It's beardism. Nice. <laughs> but but actually, I mean, is this? Have they built a product? They've tested a the product. They've acquired five hundred thousand customers, and now those customers are not profitable. But actually, with this product, will they acquire a bunch of people? Because mm. maybe with bigger marketing, with you know a broader campaign, five ninety nine. When you're going up against a however much 
any individual pays for it. I'm interested how much cheap people get the gold card with our American Express these days. But um, but maybe that's a thing. Maybe they've done uh, R&D publicly, and now it's time to monetize it in a way that they can acquire a different set of customers. I mean, look, I can only I can talk to what Curve has to offer. Curve does have three tiers, you know, so you have the free tier and you have some limitations with that free tier, but you can at least enjoy and use the product and get used to it. And there are a lot of benefits from it. Once you go up to the next tier, which is the black tier, you get more benefits. Uh, and then when you go up to the metal tier, uh, you know, you get a metal card, you get the, the travel insurance, you get the gadget insurance. So there's a lot to that you get for the for the 15 pounds a month that you're going to pay. Yeah. But that's a conscious decision that you're making. You're looking at your three tiers and you're saying, what kind of customer do I want to be? And there is something to be said about testing the waters first, particularly in fintech. So, Well, it's a value trade-off at that point. It's yeah. like, what do I benefit as a service rather yeah. than just, I mean, thanks for the last two years, goodbye. You know, yeah. It seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? I, I, I like your point, David, that this product by itself could make a lot of sense. But I think, Natalie, your point is, it, as a consumer, I don't feel like I've had choice. And yeah. for a lot of people, this is like, surprise, your product is changing. So there's a communication thing there. So David's point, I think, is a really good one. Has the credit card market changed? Are there new types of products, new ways to monetize? And, and uh, I'm really interested. Or is that the right way to monetize? Is that a well, new reaction I was, I was or not? Come to, yeah, is, time will is, tell. Is, is that we see broader fintechs are now coming under this pressure to um, generate profit as as we get into that part of the cycle for a lot of people in that stage. Do you think that we'll see more of this, and and how, and how do you handle that transition? Well, I think the, uh, different companies are trying different methods to really get there, and actually. One thing that about this membership that was quite interesting for me was the cashback bit because there aren't really that many uh, other cards in the space that do that. And actually, this cashback piece is a big thing in the U.S. So back back there, you know, people are crazy about that three percent, one, two, three percent cashback. Well, Apple Card has it exactly. Uh, but uh, if you if you change is much higher, <laughs> that's yeah. true. But if you do kind of the simple math on this, zero point five percent cashback, you'd have to be spending what like twelve hundred pounds to get that six pound back in your monthly fee. And at that point, why wouldn't I just be going to an Amex where I'll get like flight points and hotel points, which I value a lot more than six pounds a month. So uh, the proposition just feels um, a bit off, off. for someone so like me. Say like it needs bankers with spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> no, there must be a lot. I mean, I'm going to go with there's a lot, probably uh, some strong data that's showing them that their their clients are sticky and will accept this as an you know small inconvenience. Yeah, I mean, there's always a very noisy group of people on Twitter, isn't there? But well, let's see how many of them would, stick. I'm Sometimes much. they have podcasts. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's very true. All right. Next up, we have a story over on FinTech Futures. So this is Influencers Bow It for the Gram. So this is RBS is working with a social media stars to promote its freshly launched digital banking app. So in partnership with Visa, the bank has sponsored posts that position Bow as a cost-cutting tool. So model and actor Dominic Anderson, no idea who that is, appears in one photo which touts the app and its budgeting features. Other Instagram posts feature interior designers and various different TikTok celebrities, which I got bloody obsessed with over Christmas, I'm not going to lie. It's a really interesting one. I mean, RBS are getting like lambasted here for sort of using influencers to try and make their thing look cool, but bloody hell, if everybody doesn't do that. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I'm usually on the bandwagon for like, isn't this mental? But And taking the both thing out of this, like, actually, this is just a good cost-effective way of actually getting into the psyche of younger folks, right? This is just smart marketing. 
This yeah. is the way marketing should be done today. And if you don't have an influencer strategy, then you're really missing the boat. So for us here at Curve, influencers really work for us. We get some of our stickiest customers through influencers. Mm. And it's sometimes I'm really shocked. Yeah. <laughs> like some of the influencers, I'm like, really? Okay. Mm. But it's some of our stickiest customers. Why? Because those influencers have, you know, when you took like when you look at the social media profile that they've built for themselves the their followers really are living their lives mm. and so when they're recommend and they know that they're recommending things and being paid for it but because they have decided to recommend certain products their audience is like okay wow this is yeah. i'm going to go with that because i identify with you as an influencer that's what it's all about and i absolutely think there's i, I think it's a cheap shot it's it's the right way to go. All of the fintechs are are doing this anyways. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I've been one of the people to sort of criticize Bo, but I I agree with you. I think this is exactly the type of thing that they should be trying to do to legitimize the product that they've got. Is the product good? Different matter. But actually, I Maybe guess... Maybe they're trying terms... to say it's that your granddad trying to be cool. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, if you're in a situation where you're, um, I mean, back in the day, like your banking was recommended from your mum or dad. You know I mean, now it's like some random dude on TikTok. So fine, like that's how influence works, right? So um, this is probably just very cost-effective uh, marketing. And probably as from a big bank's perspective, like RBS, actually doing influencer marketing takes a lot of balls to actually make that change within your organization where you're used to paying the FT for doing things. You know? I love that point because actually how does a big bank experiment with this type of marketing and having another brand is a great way to do that. And having brand permission to be able to do that is really, really powerful. So you know, credit to them. And, and as you say, Curve uses this, Revolut uses this. This is a known strategy. I wonder about the ability to follow through with authenticity in terms of product. That would be my sort of, it's a high risk strategy. You want to be confident in the product, I think, before you turn this fire hose on. You want to know that when you're turning on those influencers, what's coming through the door, those people Don't get me wrong. You have to have a strategy. You have to know how to brief them properly. You need to make sure the right messages are coming out. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that they're on brand, right? So you don't want an influencer that's going to damage your brand. So there's a risk there, but get this right. And it can make such a difference. Mm. But I, I guess it's this is the type of thing you wouldn't see from NatWest, right? So maybe, mm. uh, you know, RBS, NatWest are probably not going out there trying to get influencers to promote their current account because, I mean, people are going to see through that pretty quickly. So at least there's a, there's a good enough element. You know, the product is backing up some of the mystique from the, the you know, the, the, the sort of virality that they're trying to sort of drive off the marketing, right? And I think it would be great. It would be great to see the ROE of uh, social media influencers on the upstick of the financial products. I mean, uh, we can see uh, how this can open to the doors of influencers selling financial uh, uh, product. It happened in pharma, you know, for beauty creams, uh, and regulators stopped it immediately. Mm. Uh, and and to be fair, nothing new under the sun. Uh, I think who was promoting ICOs? social media, you know, mm-hmm. stars. So I think it, it, I agree with you. I think we need to be super cautious, very, very cautious. But, you know, people are, are, are still uh, asking, you know, uh, big influencers uh, to, to go and, and promote, uh, promote this. Yeah. Mm. I think it's also interesting the kind of demographic they're targeting, right? So I, I kind of see millennials and Gen Z pretty separate. So millennials now are like late 20s, early 30s. They probably have, uh, some of them married, have 
kids, so they probably are not going to take exactly. Hello, <laughs> probably not going to take advice from an influencer on their finances. But I think this strategy is probably more uh, geared towards the slightly younger generation and their first jobs, um, really following the influencers like uh, Natalie you mentioned. Um, but Even I think I have bought off of in- my influencers. Have you? Yes, <laughs> that's <Thanks>. amazing. <laughs> uh, but it's actually like creating that brand loyalty that will take them. So when I hit this certain milestone in my life, will I use this? brand to get my mortgage out from. But I think it's creating the longevity. It's more of a long-term play. It's brand building. And actually, brand building is a different purchase to um, sort of uh, direct response and CPMs that you see with mass market advertising. And and the CPMs on influencer marketing always looks really, really expensive, but the effectiveness is way higher than you would see in almost any other channel. You see the same with with podcasts. It's, it's almost impossible to measure, and yet every advertiser that puts money through, it's like, whoa, this is completely different to, to say, a conference stand or something like that. So there's, there's definitely these new types of media and having the ability to experiment, as you say, David, and as you say, Shafali, pick a different audience and, and get after it. Like, who are going to be your customers of tomorrow? And I think that's a really good point. Mm. Now, the one that stands out to me, though, is TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, because that user base is teen, preteen, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm not sure if it is anymore. Like, I think, it, I think it's changed really dramatically. Like, actually, and, like, skewed really heavily. I think a lot of the, bizarrely, I think a lot of the Facebook users have flipped to not not completely flipped, but are viewing TikTok in a big way. I think almost the people who didn't move from Facebook to Instagram have moved from Facebook to TikTok. And it's it, honestly, I, I I've been so surprised at how many um, how many people who have sort of started and scaled in a major way there, but have got followings that aren't just like you know ten yeah. year old girls. Yeah. But uh, but we will see. Also, there's some funny shit on there. Honestly. Yeah, like, just... and you see TikTok appearing in lots of other platforms as well. So it's become the home of creativity in a way that um, Snapchat had for a bit, and then Facebook was able to copy. Mm. Um, so you know, if you're not experimenting with this in in a low risk way, I think you're missing out. Mm. And I think it's interesting to see Bo giving that an experiment. And what can the rest of the organization learn and when? Mm. All right, well, let's see what happens. If they uh, suddenly dominate the market, then uh, who are we to say it didn't work? Well, we'll see. All right, that wraps up this week's news show. I mean, we did it just about good for time, albeit going on about Singapore for a lot of the beginning, but I hope you enjoyed that anyway. Thank you so much to all of our guests who came along for this week's show. Tram, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, where can people find out more about you? No, first, thanks very much for having me. Uh, we are uh, in London, uh, in, in Canary Wharf, but we have a large community as well. We have 50,000 professional learners, so they're all spread out, and we, we encourage all of them to meet. Even though we do online education, it's also a matter to find us. We're also in Singapore, Abu Dhabi, um, and uh, Hong Kong. And uh, But how do we find uh, me? I'm on social media, and we can find on cft.education. Very Thanks good. very much. Uh, Natalie, where can people find out more about you and Curve? So uh, just uh, Google Curve, download the Curve app, um, and you very easily can find a, a promo code to get £5 once you've made your first transaction. You know, over the top banking platform, so you just put all your cards into one's great um, to simplify your financial life. Um, and we're also, if you want to look up uh, you know, what we're about, we're on Curve.app. Very cool. Shivali, where can people find out more about you? Well, about um, Fluidly, you can go to www.fluidly.com. But about me, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Shafali G. Very good. Uh, you find me at uh, SYTaylor on Twitter and uh, Simon at 11FS.com. Very good. As for me, you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. 
Get in touch. Let us know what you thought about today's stories. Uh, you can find us over on podcasts at 11fs.com. If we've missed anything or bugged anything up, feel free to email me or david at 11fs.com. I love the abuse. Mm. All right. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter over on 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. It's bloody hilarious. Thanks for listening. Mm. Goodbye. It really is. It is. It is.